In the Ten Commandments, there's one particularly popular commandment, thou shall not steal. Now, everyone's heard of this, but what does it mean, thou shall not steal? Well, what's the single most important element of the commandment that we must understand? Well, steal, right? The rest of what we get, thou shalt not, you cannot, you may not, fine. But steal, well, there's the term of contention right there. So what does steal mean? What is stealing? Do we as a society have a single precise understanding of what the word means? And if not, how can we uphold the commandment? How can we determine with precision whether someone is stealing or they're not stealing? Is there such thing as good stealing? And if there is, what makes good stealing different from bad stealing? Is it even possible to determine such a thing for volitional beings? Or is the commandment, frankly, absolutely useless because there's no way to determine whether someone has stolen something or killed someone or coveted something? or bore false witness, whether they've lied, right? Now, if these things are not determinable in a precise way, some black and white, yes or no kind of way, this is stealing and this is not stealing, then what is the point of the commandments? Must every interaction be determined either stealing or not stealing by some judge? Well, that's kind of ridiculous and far too cumbersome a structure on which to build a society. How could we determine for ourselves at any moment what is stealing? Now, without a precise definition of stealing, each of us could be arbitrarily guilty at any one point. And then there's the judge. What exact precise metric must a judge then use for such a determination? Well, let's take a look at the word stealing and see what we can see. Now, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and I am not a huge fan, but here it is. The common definition of stealing is to take the property of another wrongfully and especially as a habitual or regular practice. And according to dictionary.com, again, not a fan, but the common definition of stealing is to take the property of another or others without permission or right, especially secretly or by force. Okay. We have a starting point. What is common amongst both of those definitions? Both include taking without permission, right? But taking of what? Well, Merriam-Webster says to take the property of another. And dictionary.com says to take the property of another or others. So now we know what's being taken, property. And we know that the property is obviously not owned by the taker, right? and that the taker does not have permission. Okay, so let's go through a few scenarios here to try to shore things up, because there may be good stealing, and there may be bad stealing. There may be good thieves, and there may be bad thieves. Certainly, if this is a commandment, this must be worth figuring out. If A goes to his neighbor's house, let's call him C, and without C's permission, a breaks into C's car, hotwires it, and takes his car. Is that stealing? Now, I give you no opinion on the matter. No value judgment whatsoever. Simply answer for yourself. No one's looking. Okay? If A goes to C's house and without C's permission, breaks into C's car and takes it, is that stealing? Okay. Now, what if A wanted to make sure that it was okay and went to his other neighbor, Miss B, to ask her permission? 
uh, Miss B, would it be all right if I go over to take C's car? And she says, oh, sure, dear. I never liked that mean old A anyway, right? So now with Miss B's permission, A takes C's car. Is that stealing? Okay, what if A really wanted to make sure it was okay and went to every house on the block or everyone in the city or state or country and asked each person if it was okay to take C's car? And each and every person, except for one, C, of course, says that it's okay for A to take C's car. Is that stealing? Again, I'm not giving you an opinion on the matter. Okay, now, what if A didn't know how to hotwire a car? What if A then went to everyone in the state and asked them, hey, I'd like to hire this guy who's really good at hotwiring cars to take C's car for me. Is that okay? And again, they all agree that C is a real son of a so-and-so and it's perfectly fine. Is that stealing? And what if A really needed that car to, say, drive to work? Or how about this? Drive old Miss B to the doctor. See, it's not for A, it's for poor Miss B. A's doing it for her. Now, is taking C's car, not selfishly, but selflessly for Miss B, bless her heart, is that stealing? Now, perhaps that one requires a little more consideration. The addition to the scene here of Miss B complicates the matter. Could it be that some stealing is good stealing. And let's say that you've determined, now I have no idea what you said yes or no to, okay? But let's say for illustration that you determined for yourself, as long as you had the permission of everyone in the city, well, except for C, of course, right? That it was okay to take C's car. Do you think that C will agree? Now, I doubt it, or else he would have just given A his car. So again, it seems that stealing is not a precise, universally understood concept. What C says is stealing is precisely what you're saying is not. Or perhaps it's because we don't have a precise understanding of the other vital word used in the so-called definitions of the word stealing. What is it in both definitions that is being stolen? Well, property. But what is property? Now, without a precise definition of property, there's no way to determine if property is being stolen. Property, after all, is the only thing that can be stolen. And without a precise definition of property, there's no way to determine if stealing is right or wrong. Whether we have too much stealing going on, not enough stealing going on, or just about the right amount of stealing going on. And what is right and what is wrong, it all starts with property. Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we discuss solutions to humanity's problems derived from the application of the scientific method. We also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the Mind Over Murder Case of the Week. Our topic today is the nature of property. So let's get right into it. 
In the last episode, we read through a paper discussing the nature of the definition of the word coercion. Now, I stated before we read the paper that the content we were diving into was going to be fairly lofty and perhaps a little over-technical. But it did, at the very least, give you a taste of what definitions, and more importantly, operational definitions, look like. Now, we'll get more into operational definitions in detail later on. But for now, it's my hope that it gave you a glimpse as to why defining our terms in such a way is not only important, but vital to being able to build a solid foundation and integration for a final solution to our problems. But it's one thing to hear the conclusions, to allow someone to tell you which is best, which is right, or which is moral. That's a logical fallacy appealing to authority, or better known as dogma something which we've already berated as useless. So we're going to rewind a bit and start at the very bottom, the foundation, and work our way up. We will hide nothing. There's no agenda here but the elimination of violence and poverty and the formulation of a just and durable society, all without the use of force or manipulation. So in order to build freedom, it's important to know what freedom is. And in order to know what freedom is, it's vital that we understand what freedom is not. And it all starts with the concept of property. Now, the definitions we use in the science of volition are not here to be thrust upon you. You are perfectly free to agree to use them or disagree and use your own. They're stated here so that as we continue to discuss these terms and build upon them, you know exactly what we mean. When we say the word property, we mean exactly this and only this all the time. If you disagree with, say, Isaac Newton's definition of the word force, then you are absolutely free to define it your own way. But you must be able to at least articulate that definition. And you might want to ask yourself if your definition of force will allow you to build a car or get you to the moon. Precise communication by itself solves no problems, but it is a vital component of the solution. You cannot have a solution without accurate communication, but accurate communication by itself per se does nothing to solve problems. This is why we spend so much time on semantic precision. You probably think that I spend way too much time on the subject already. Let's get on with it. You say you have solutions. Let's get to them. Okay. I get it. But let's do that with the theory of relativity. Let's get straight to the solution, down and dirty. Okay, 25 words or less, the solution to relativity is E equals MC squared. Fine, now you know everything you need to know and we can move on. Well, do you see my point? It's a little more complicated than that, isn't it? It takes more than the solution to understand what the solution means why the solution means what it means, and why the solution works. Hence, why it's a solution in the first place. In order to derive an understanding, and thus a precise definition, of property, let's start with this. Is there a toaster tree? Is there a bush on which Advil grows? Is there such thing as a keyboard or mouse root? Now, what about a river of single malt scotch? which, admittedly enough, would be pretty cool. In fact, does anything that we traditionally consider to be our property exist in nature? 
Now, let's leave things like wild-grown fruits and vegetables or, say, wood for fires, natural resources. Let's leave them out for now. We'll get to them in a minute. So the question is, does anything that you have in your house, excluding natural resources, exist in nature? Is there a toaster tree? No. Is there an Advil bush? No. Is there a keyboard or mouse root? No. These are objects that were conceived, built, grown, gathered, packed, refined by you or made by someone else and traded to you. These are all things that are generated or acted upon. You take a rock, natural resource, and you conceive of an idea. You smooth and polish that rock and you scratch on one side the immortal words, turn me over, and on the other side, thank you. This rock, this natural resource, through your ideas and your actions, has become property. You, the first human on earth, are hungry. You walk through the woods and you see a tree with red round things hanging on it, a natural resource. The idea comes to you, maybe this is edible, and you act upon it by removing the apple from the tree and eating it. This apple through your ideas and your actions, has become property. You gather those apples and through trial and error determine that if you take the apple, plant it, and maintain an environment conducive to growth, that you can make more apple trees, which will bear more apples. So many apples, in fact, that you now have more than you can use. And you can trade them to the guy with those devilishly clever pet rocks. So it's individual volitional beings that generate property through action. Property does not exist in nature, and all property requires an owner. So is there property on Venus? No. Is there property in the depths of the Mariana Trench, far below where anyone has explored? No. Property is a product of individual action. Individuals take actions which bring property into existence. Property does not exist in nature. Your property is simply any derivative of your life, excluding your children, and we'll get to that. And property begins with life itself. We call this primordial property. Who is the owner of your life? Well, you are. After all, if you don't own you, someone else must own you. That covers all possibilities. And we call that slavery. So we're born owning one thing and one thing only, ourselves. And that, ladies and gentlemen, places us all, at the time of our births, in an extreme state of poverty. But we grow and we observe and we learn things and thus we gain the first derivatives of our life. We gain ideas. We gain beliefs. We act upon the world, upon the objects around us. The cookie jar is too high. We innovate a solution, a stack of books, those two wooden blocks, and that couch cushion should solve the problem, our first invention. These first derivatives of our lives, these intangible things, we call primary property, our actions, Thoughts, ideas, beliefs, innovations. Primary property, the intangible derivatives of our lives. Can you have ideas without first having your life? 
Or can you have actions, thoughts, beliefs without first having your life? Can you innovate something without first living? No, they're all derivatives from your life. Now, as we continue to live, experience, and derive more and more primary property, we can use that primary property to generate that which we call secondary property, tangible things like food, a house, a fireplace, beds, tables, chairs. And those things which we cannot make ourselves can be traded for with those who have the skills, the innovations, the actions to make them. Cars, toasters, refrigerators, phones, computers, pencils. So the second derivative of our lives is secondary property, the tangible stuff we have. But notice that the things we traditionally consider to be property are secondary, last in the list, and the least important. You cannot have secondary property without first having primary property. You cannot have a car without someone first innovating the car. And you cannot innovate the car without first living. If someone takes your car, your secondary property, you can use your primary property, your intangible innovations, ideas, thoughts, beliefs, or actions to either make a new one or to make something with which you can trade for one. But if someone takes your primary property, if they take your innovations, what we commonly refer to as intellectual property, if they take your ideas, what we commonly refer to as censoring you, or they take your actions, which we commonly refer to as restraining you, then you can no longer derive secondary property. And if someone takes your primordial property, your life, you can no longer derive anything. And we have a commonly known word for the theft of life. It's murder. But even that is imprecise when it comes to war or corporal punishment. But we'll get to those later on. So, in his theory of volitional science, Professor Galambos has defined the word property as a volitional being's life and all non-procreative derivatives thereof. Property can thus be split into three categories. Primordial property, your life. Primary property, the intangible derivatives of life. Ideas, thoughts, beliefs, actions, innovations. And secondary property, the tangible derivatives of life, your stuff. Now, there is a disclaimer there, non-procreative. Why? Well, your children are, of course, derivatives of your life, but they are not and cannot be property. Property is owned, but can you own someone's life? No, they own it. Anything else would be slavery. So your children, though derivatives of your life, are the exception and are not property. Now, once again, you are free to disagree with this definition and use your own. However, when we discuss property here at The Rational Apprentice, this is what we mean precisely every time. Now, in the next episode, we will use our definition of property to precisely hone the definition of stealing or theft, if you prefer that, so that we can go back to our experiment with A and C and determine precisely what is stealing and what is not. All right, Mind of a Murder is next up. 
In today's Mind Over Murder discussion, Reagan and I continue with the initial conclusions reached by the police. The first lead in the case, and it's a spoiler alert, but I don't see any other way around it, the contents of the Summerton man's suitcase. It's a very odd list of items indeed, and take my word for it, it's going to confuse the matter tenfold. I think that probably by the end of today's conversation, you will have a very good idea why this case continues to this day to be unsolved. All right, let's roll the tape. Okay, discovering the suitcase did clear up a few details about the Summerton man's final day. Um, he must have gone to the train station and purchased uh, the ticket to Henley Beach that was found in his pocket. Well, why? Because he couldn't have purchased it from anywhere else. Okay, so let's presume that that's what, yeah. Yeah, but discovering the suitcase did clear up. That, that this has got nothing to do with the suitcase. Are they, once again, I think the police are concluding that because his bag was in left luggage, it was he who went to the station to buy the ticket. Yes. Which I think we've discussed enough to uh, put a lot of holes in, in that assumption. Um, he must have gone to the train station and purchased a ticket to Henley Beach that was found in his pocket. Records show that the public baths at the station were closed on November 30th. The Summerton man must have inquired to where he could freshen up, been told the facilities were closed, and been sent to the public baths about a half a mile away. This is... What? What? <laughs> this is ridiculous. It, it is. He headed to the facilities to shower and shave... How do you know that? Why? Because he has... What? How do you know that? But the extra walk caused him to miss his train. Right. So we're not only missing a lot, but we're, we're taking... They took a premise. And this is where check your premises is so important. They took a premise that he bought the ticket. If he bought the ticket, then how did he miss the train? Well, if he missed the train, it was probably because he had to use the bath, which was a half a mile away. It just gets worse as they build on the first premise that he must have bought his own ticket. Gosh, it may be true, but there's no reason to believe it's true. And then he decides to take a bus. But do they say why he didn't take the bus to Henley Beach instead to Glen Egg? Well, maybe there was no bus to Henley Beach, but that should have been in the report to make it complete. Yeah, it, it continues. He, he decided to take a bus rather than wait for the next train and bought a bus ticket to Glenelg, which was also found in his pocket. This is all, this, this had all happened around 11 a.m. on November 30th. Ah. Uh, precluding. Yep. The second, the third witness um, carrying a body on the beach. I don't buy any of this. I think that this is totally erroneous. Um, meaning that there were now eight hours to account for between him leaving the train station and being spotted on the beach. Yes. Okay. This is, this can only be true if you completely ignore the third witness who spotted the man, um, prior to that in the wee hours of the morning. Now, this brings me to the map. This is a uh, an area where you've got a Gulf, Gulf St. Vincent, on your left. Adelaide is a town inland on the right. And along the water, 
um, obviously to the to the uh, west of Adelaide is going from north to south. You've got Henley Beach, you've got Glenelg, and then south of that is the beach where we found the body. Right now. I don't know what this looked like in um, 1948, but if I turn on my transit tab, I can see that indeed there is a train line going from Adelaide to Glen Elk. Obviously, I can't see if there's a bus line. No. Uh, but there is a train line, and it is a single train line. It stops at Glen Elk. Obviously, it can't, it, it's right on the water, so it can't go any further than that. That is the the last stop and the only other stop is Adelaide. It is a, what do you call that? A commuter train back and forth. But here's what's odd, right? From Adelaide to Henley Beach is, uh, I'm going to say, five miles. Yeah, it's very short distance. It's not, it's not far, no. okay? But, so that would be crow flies five miles. From Adelaide to Glen Elk is again Same thing. five miles right. from Adelaide to uh, Somerton Beach is a good that's got to be 10 miles and that's all the way south so this whole thing it doesn't work he has an unused train ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach Henley Beach is north of Adelaide northwest a bus, a bus ticket from Adelaide to Glenelg. Glenelg is southwest. To go from Glenelg to Henley Beach would be a distance that would be very, very similar to going from Adelaide to Henley Beach. Why would he do that? I don't believe this story. I believe what you said yesterday is much more probable is much more um possible i believe he purchased two tickets going in two different directions to throw people off or somebody purchased them for him to throw people off um remind me the suitcase was at the train station in adelaide correct so we don't know if he had been in somerton beach any time before he's found, his body's found. Interesting, because they did say at one point there was no blood, there was no signs of uh, vomit or any of that. Maybe he had right. been killed in Adelaide and taken to Somerton Beach because yeah. the bus ticket and the train ticket do go from Adelaide. Yeah. I mean, there are three beaches involved here. Why? Yeah, especially since there was nothing in the suitcase that were beach clothing. Right, and we're going to get to the items in the suitcase in a minute. Yeah. What do you? One last thing. What do you think about the stenciling kit? I mean, if look, if he's got a stenciling kit, he either works on a merchant ship or there's there's cargo out there somewhere. What is the stencil? Why I'm I'm not understanding what the stenciling kit would. What does okay, he do? Okay, so think about. Um, you know what a stencil is, right? Yeah. So, so you would put a stencil up and you'd paint uh, a name or a destination, right, on a crate, right? This isn't; these aren't uh, modern um, crates for for shipping. These are wooden crates. Oh, 
Okay. And you would paint a destination. That's how they did it then. Okay. Right. So, um, so there, there, if, I mean, there's gotta be, there's cargo out there somewhere that has a destination that he obviously stenciled on. It doesn't say whether or not the stencil kit had been used. Mm. Um, I, I think we have to assume that it had been, um, I'm, I, I don't understand what the table knife that had been sawed down does. Airmail cards mm-hmm. could be anything. Um, the coat could be anything, but we don't, I'm not seeing any indication that they looked at the cargo ships and looked for um, cargo destinations or cargo uh, um, origins. No, I don't think that so. That were, you know, that were uh, undocumented or something along those lines. Okay, items in the suitcase. I've got a dressing gown and a cord. I'm assuming that's a belt. A laundry bag with the name Keen written on it. Now, we're supposed to believe that Keen is not his name. Uh, at least that's what they concluded, yes. One pair of, sh- of scissors in a sheath. One knife in a sheath. This is the cut-down table knife. One stencil brush, mm. two singlets, two pairs of underpants. Okay, now, this is interesting because we've got two singlets. Well, just remember, we've got two singlets, two pairs of underpants. Okay, that would be fine. One pair of trousers with, with dry cleaning marks. Are we going to check up on those dry cleaners? I don't know. <laughs> yes. uh, with a 6D, a sixpence coin in the pocket. So um, now Australia was using sixpence. UK was using sixpence at the time. One sports coat, one coat shirt, one pair of pajamas, one yellow coat shirt. I don't know why this yellow coat shirt is separate from the other. Yeah, why one has a color and the other one doesn't. Yeah. One singlet bearing the name Keen. K-E-A-N, without an E on the end. So now we've got three singlets, one singlet with the name torn out, four singlets, or is it actually two? One's got the wrong, one's got the wrong name spelled wrong, and the other one has the name torn yeah. out. And, and you, I don't know. No. I'm going to assume that. Okay. I think there's two singlets. One shirt without a name tag, um, six kerchiefs, one piece of light board, because you never know when you need a light bulb. <laughs> right. <laughs> Eight large envelopes and one small envelope. Uh, two coat hangers. One razor strap. Uh, one razor. One cigarette lighter. One shaving brush. One small screwdriver. One toothbrush. Toothpaste. One glass dish. Uh, one soap dish containing a hairpin and three safety pins. One front and back collar stud, one brown button, and one teaspoon. Uh, one broken pair of scissors. So now we've got, do we have one pair of scissors in a sheath and a broken pair of scissors? I don't know. Or is the scissors, is this just a terrible list, just like the, the, the other one, um, the singlets, mm-hmm. and the pair of scissors in the sheath oh, is it's broken. Oh, broken, yeah. And it's one. One card of tan thread, one tin of, of tan boot polish. 
Would have been nice to know what color his shoes were. Exactly, yes. One tin of boot polish, uh, two airmail stickers, one scarf, one towel, and an unspecified number of pencils. Mostly Royal Sovereign brand. That's a British name. That's a British company. And they were H-type pencils. Well, are there three pencils? Three of the unspecified number were H? Don't know. Right. I do have to say, I know now, I know less now. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> than, than I did when we started. Yeah, exactly. There are things now are, there are so many things. Finding the common denominator, I, I, I just as you said, there's nothing common here. And no, he's it's a very eclectic mix of things. And absolutely. And he could have done everything. I think these facts would fit a story of he was running away. He did not want to be found. Um, and so he tore out labels. He tore off the label and the suitcase. I think it's except for the man carrying another man. We would have to say that that didn't happen. Um it could be that someone was doing it to get a hold of him or a group of people were doing it to get rid of him and he was running or they killed him and then did all this. Uh, the head scratcher. This is a very strange, yeah. it really is. We've got one glass dish and a teaspoon. We've got, I mean, the soap dish containing the hairpin and three safety pins doesn't bother me. The front, the collar stud and the brown button doesn't bother me toothpaste toothbrush shaving brush razor razor strap doesn't bother me cigarette lighter is interesting yeah because he has uh, match he uses matches he, exactly um small screwdriver is interesting the coat hangers the clothing in and of itself, is not all that interesting. Except there's nothing for the summer. You didn't see shorts in here. And we don't know, yeah, we don't even know when he arrived. Okay. I don't want to go any further into this because the next section, I think, is going to really change directions. This one this is a little, it's not disappointing, it's confusing. It's a very eclectic mix of things that he's got here. And I think that the uh, assuming, of course, that the author here is authentically communicating what the police actually believed, I think the police's conclusions are erroneous at best. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. Um... Yeah, let's leave it here. And I guess prepare ourselves. The next section really changes the, the story. It really brings light into, okay, who the heck is this guy and where is he coming from? Maybe it'll tie it all in together. Yeah, I think it does. I think, it, I think it's going to lead us in a direction. Um, the singlet bearing the name Keen without an E on the end, that's a weird one. Yeah. The knife in the sheath... Apparently a cut-down table knife. That's a weird one. Again, the stencil. Why are we not checking merchant shipping? Why they're not... I think that's the biggest mystery for me. Why they were so 
few connections, so little going out of your way to check on more things, to distribute the fingerprints to the English-speaking world only. I mean, Interpol had a fingerprint database at that time. Did it they? might not have been complete, complete, but yeah, it was. Interpol started that earlier. They didn't say they went through Interpol. They just said the English-speaking world, whatever that means. They just don't explain enough. If this were a scientific experiment, it could not be followed up by further research because you just don't have enough solid unequivocal variables to work with to repeat this experiment. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on nowadays. Oh, (laughs) regrettably. I laugh, but it's not funny. All right, everyone, that'll do it for today. Let me remind you that in order to get the weekly case notes four days prior to the release of the Rational Apprentice podcast, you'll need to go over to the website and sign up for the free weekly newsletter. In addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we'll have studies, practices, and you can keep up to date with everything that's going on over here. We have a lot of courses and bonus material coming in the near future, and I know you're going to want to get a hold of those when they come out. So head on over to therationalapprentice.com slash subscribe to sign up now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.